All right, everybody, welcome to the March 9th edition of Cascadian Views. We've got the whole crew here today. Uh, Dan, JJ, Chris, it's been a slow news week. We don't really get to say that very often. It's Yeah, it's all pretty relative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I guess kind of the, the most interesting news, uh, if perhaps not the most consequential, was we got a lot of people with firm yeses and nos on the campaign trail, and then one person who apparently had a firm no that became a not so firm no. Uh, Hickenlooper is now a declared <laughs> candidate. Uh, Hickenlooper is the former two-term governor of Colorado. He's, I don't know how much he should get credit for turning Colorado into a blue state, but he was the man who oversaw the state while it transitioned into being a blue state. Uh, Merkley, who has gone incredibly far down the path of running for president. I'm serious, he has a, dozens of paid staff on the ground in New Hampshire and uh, Iowa is now out of the race. He, he pulled his name out of contention. Uh, Hillary Clinton kind of, I don't want to say she waffled a bit, that's unfair to her, but made a comment to a local reporter that she wasn't going to be running for president, and uh, the national news media ran with that as a big story about uh, how Hillary was not going to be running for president and definitively closed the door on that, and then she got all upset and didn't think that she had said anything like it was being reported as, uh, and retracted that no. Uh, is there anybody I, I missed there? Um, Bloomberg, definitely. Oh, yeah. Bloomberg's no. Eric Holder. Right. I don't think anybody was really thinking he was going to run, but... I think, I think he was. I don't think anyone else Right, like, I remember a lot of speculation about him last year, I mean, and it was, I always felt like that was more of a, a pressuring speculation, like, poke, poke, hey, Eric, maybe you should, maybe if we just talk about it like it's going to happen, he'll step up, but it never really seemed like his thing either. He has Yeah, been I don't think he's ever held elective office. Yeah, he is continuing to be engaged, though. He's got something going on with the Democratic Governors Association advising, uh, the whole like slew of freshman uh, Democrats who got elected as governors. So it's, yeah. it's not like he's disappeared. I mean, he's been he's had his whole uh, redistricting project that he and Obama have kind of right poking at for a few years. I've seen him involved in the the upper Midwest kind of uh, quite a bit. Yeah, Michigan and Wisconsin and all that. He's been real heavy on the commentary about. Yeah, well, those are that's kind of the epicenter of where redistricting really needs to be unfucked. So, yeah, I think he was kind of appealing to some people as a, you know, like a callback to Obama. But Biden and Booker both have that represented in different ways. I just don't think there was any space for him. Yeah, Booker, you're saying the the hopey changey sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's that seems like a good characterization. Yeah, I uh, I guess I get that. He is all about the promise, and his big push is uh, the transformation that Newark had underneath his leadership and what's possible and all that. So yeah, I I see that. Mm -hmm. um, Bloomberg published an op-ed in Bloomberg News, which he owns because he's like the richest man in America, minus a couple. Um, 
they dropped the paywall for that so that everybody was allowed to read it. Uh, usually you have to pay obscene amounts of money to get access to Bloomberg, or at least a Bloomberg terminal, which allows you to get access to Bloomberg stuff before the club's normal Bloomberg subscription. Uh, he basically said he was too moderate for the, the primary. Not that it was a bad thing or he was too moderate for the party, just that the appetite for this election seems to be for a more progressive candidate, and he was going to instead spend his money uh, with candidates that he thinks he can work with on a number of issues. He's uh, getting really big into carbon now. Um, he's been big into guns. He's the, the main financial patron of Everytown, for example. Uh, and he, he's been really pushing soda taxes across the country for the last few years after he rolled that out end of his mayoralty in New York City. Uh, I think there's more of a place for Bloomberg in the primary than he'd like to admit, but I do think it's nice that it stays less messy out. And God knows it's messy enough. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's... Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, I think he's right. I think he's probably not in a place where the primary, the primary electorate really is. And it's good that he at least recognized that and is willing to put his efforts towards something more constructive. Mm -hmm. Especially since he could have actually stayed in forever if he wanted. Yeah, to sure. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, kind of honestly, to piggyback on all three of those those points, uh, I agree with you, Brock. I think there is more space for him than he's admitting. But Dan is also completely right. Like, it's not a good spot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. It's I not can a easily rewrite his headline as billionaire disappointed Democratic Party doesn't love billionaires as much as they used to. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's essentially his gripe. It's like, oh, man, nobody thinks I'm fucking special anymore. Jeez, <laughs> I guess I just won't run you guys. Uh, Is he an like, actual good, Democrat fuck now? off. I think so. I think he actually did join the party at some point. But... Well, I mean, he used to be. He switched to yeah. to being a a Republican just to get the New York City mayorship. Like mm -hmm. that was in the era where Rudy Giuliani's endorsement was basically a ticket to the office, and you you had to be a fairly liberal Republican for that. And Bloomberg changed from being Democrat to being a Republican, and then I think halfway through, like end of his first term, he switched to an independent. Somewhere in uh, according to Wikipedia, this is actually hilarious. Uh, political party, Democratic, before 2001, and then 2018 to present. Okay. <laughs> so all time before 2001, he has been a Democrat. So yeah, I, yeah, that makes sense. 9-11, Giuliani, he went red, and now he wants to be a Democrat again. But we don't like billionaires enough, I well, guess. To be <laughs> fair, his actual declared Republican period was only like four years. He switched to being a, an independent for a second term or thereabouts. Yeah, a Republican from 01 to 07, independent from 07 to 2018. Yeah, yeah so it he just shops around. Natural. What'd you say, Chris? Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say it may have been a, uh, a kind of natural balancing of forces as Giuliani has now gone full deep state. Right. <laughs> Somebody who used to be a Giuliani had to go in another direction. 
That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I got to be an independent now. Rudy's gone. Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> I can't. No. That's hilarious. Uh, we also got fairly deep dives into policy proposals from a couple of the big women in the field. Elizabeth Warren has plans to break up technology companies, which, oh boy, I have complicated feelings about. Um, and then Amy Klobuchar. Yeah, lots of them. Yeah. Amy Klobuchar also rolled out some things. Chris, do you, do you have a deeper dive into that? Yeah, so what she was talking about was um, basically some kind of a tax or a charge or something related to these companies when they sell people's data to someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, somehow that will come back to the people. So what she was saying is basically we're a commodity and we're not getting paid anything for it. Well, I mean, God, I have complicated feelings about that because we are. Like Facebook yeah, like, sells my data wrong. and I get Facebook. <laughs> that is what that <laughs> is what I'm being paid. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I am I should have to pay money for this service by giving them my data and they monetize it. I don't have to. Like I I don't think that should be illegal. I I I accept that trade off most of the time. I, I do think maybe they should have to be more upfront. Maybe they should have to, you know, spell out exactly what they'll do with your data, and you have to explicitly consent for that. But I, I don't like the idea of taking away a, a pathway to monetization for startups. Though I also do think that if people had to pay for Facebook, they'd be more upfront about wanting changes and expecting different things from the company. That that is very mm-hmm. true. And and in and in a default technically free circumstance i think that customer agency is greatly reduced either perceptually or actually that that is a very fair point i just and and maybe this is kind of an era when we grew up where my mindset's coming from you know the the dot-com boom was was present like the the explosion of silicon valley like we we lived that uh, there are so many startups that are really ingrained in society today at a very deep level who fundamentally wouldn't have been able to get off the ground if they weren't A, free, and, and you know, a low barrier to entry for new consumers, and be profitable. And they don't have to be profitable right away. Facebook didn't post its first profitable quarter for damn near a decade. Skype still has never posted a full year profit. Or Twitter, excuse me. Twitter has never posted a full year profit. They they posted like three quarterly profits. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like there's definitely in. I feel like it's easier to thread that needle um, than some might think. Like, we don't really seem to have a huge difference discerning small companies from big companies in most other industries. Um, I feel like it shouldn't be that hard to recognize that a startup is a startup, but like Facebook and Google aren't fucking startups anymore. Like Amazon's not run out of a garage. It can build a garage in 0.5 seconds. <laughs> it's like, it. Yeah. Like wherever the fuck it wants to, like it, you know, <laughs> this isn't 
even like a medium-sized internet company, you know, like Tableau or something like that, like an up and up, something that's been a startup but it's really grown and is doing something. Like these are massive fucking corporations that touch every country in the world but North Korea. Uh, it, it should be very easy to discern on a policy level and and impact just the giants and leave even, I would say, most of the middle ground out of it. So let's, let's kind of explore that a little bit because I'm, I think I agree with you, although I think the idea of discerning who should be covered and who shouldn't is a little bit fuzzier. Oh, totally. I mean, the absolute gray area. Yeah, that, I mean, it's like, always going to be when, a tricky when thing. Did Where's the middle ground? A startup? Like at what point did Google transition out of being a startup? I would say about a year and a half before people used Google as a verb. Okay. I mean that, you know, and I understand that that's not financially metricable, but that's also because I don't have financial analysis of Google at that time period. But like, just thinking culturally, like... See, and I, I think that's where the sticking point is. These things happen culturally culturally unlike a traditional industry there there is no real background cost to a lot of tech services sure you have servers and bandwidth but they don't scale the same way that say the gap has to scale where it has to go build a physical score that costs you know six hundred thousand dollars and then stock it with inventory that costs you know three million dollars and they've got to prepay for all that and they've got to move it and they've got to get it there it's fairly easy to tell a mom and pop from a multinational when you're in a physical business where there are certain costs that go on behind certain infrastructure that's required of you you grow in a way that that is visible and that is easily measurable and that you can design metrics for where so i just which i mean i feel like is easier for like facebook and amazon than for google um i mean because facebook it's very fucking easily trackable like there's a point in time in which they no longer needed VC money um, when he'd moved it out of just an EDU, you know, when it was originally the EDU. When they made the move to anybody can open up into Facebook, like, it took them probably two years before they weren't having to take any more of other people's money and had paid things off. Like, that should be chartable on a revenue sheet. And certainly it was observable from the outside, but similar to Amazon, like I'd say about 2004 for Amazon at the boat, at the point in time in which they started offering Amazon prime and customized services for a premium price at that point in time is probably where they're pivoting from like a middle sized startup into something a lot larger. Yeah, I mean, clearly there is a, I was just looking it up, you know, out of curiosity, but Google's Q4 earnings were income of $8.9 billion on $39.3 billion in revenue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think somewhere they passed a point where you could say this is no longer a struggling company. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of easily identifiable places it could be. Uh, similar to Facebook requiring you to have an EDU address for a while, uh, Google used to be uh, google.stanford.edu. Oh, shit, that's right. The the Stanford servers before they they spun it off and it got its own web address back in, God, I want to 
want to say that was like 2001 or something like that. But from mm. 99 to 2001, it was a Stanford project or 97 to 99 or something like that. You know, or there's the day that they had their IPO where they went public. Uh, that was a big moment for them. They brought on a serious business guy, CEO. That's right. I and, forgot. Uh, you know, actually, Brock, the IPO might be an easier, like, I mean, not to over oversimplify the metric, because I think that there should definitely be, like, a multi-scale kind of an analysis. But the IPO offering is a really major benchmark in the growth and the transition out of a startup. I mean, that's really when you're saying as a company, hey, we're successful enough, people can now invest in us. At that point in time, I feel like it's really hard to argue that you're a starter. Yeah, and that was the the day that they brought on God. What was his name? He's still involved with the company uh, to this day. Um, the the real business guy, and they put Larry and Sergey in the VP roles. They brought this right. guy on as CEO and chairman. Um, yeah, I, I think that is an easily you know made line, but I, I just I think in most cases it's real fuzzy. Spotify has barely any employees. You know, and, and they're something that roughly everybody subscribes to in, in one way or another in this country. Though is also, I mean, often a pay service, though, though it certainly wasn't yeah. initially, and there still are free right. versions of it. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I, I think the, the wonkiness of the tech industry makes that sort of like breaking it out between blue chips and, and non-blue chips a little bit harder. And so I... I really think these are going to be all or nothing rules and I would prefer I would prefer people having explicit knowledge I guess instead of a kickback from that sale if you don't want to participate you don't have to participate there are other social media networks so you don't even need social media if you don't want to um, I for one think Facebook is pretty terrible I'm really mostly on it for Most of its group. users agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, routinely, most of its users agree. Yeah. So uh, as an interesting side note on this, as I was uh, kind of looking up what she said, she was careful to say that it wasn't a specific policy, just something that she thinks we should be thinking about. You know, so she didn't have a policy recommendation. But Gavin Newsom apparently has actually called for... Uh, data dividend, like companies would pay some kind of dividend out yeah. to people whose data they use. Yeah, it's uh, that's actually been a, a long-running thing for him. He, he's been wanting that for, God, a decade now. So I feel like there's a certain amount of sense to be made in having, I mean, essentially accepting that your customers are also shareholders in, yeah. in the position in which they're not paying for a service. I, I think maybe I'd be more comfortable if we flipped it uh, around. Um, if, if something that you are doing that somebody else is reacting to gives them data about the other person that is monetizable, you should get a kickback from that. Kind of like how YouTube has a dual model. You have creators and you have uh, consumers. And if the consumers, their eyeballs are attracted to your video, you get a cut of the ad sales from that because you generated the content. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, that I, maybe I'd be more comfortable with because it's, I, I don't even know how to explain it. Maybe I'm just completely wrong. On I mean, I think it is a legitimately tricky policy issue. Like, 
And I think it's important, not just because we probably need to look at and review in general the manner by which we look at the customer and corporate interaction. I think that that's a very predatory setup right now. I mean, no surprise, I'm sure, as the anti-capitalist. But uh, I think this is a prime time to look at the kind of ecology, the system of corporate and consumer interactions and, you know, find a way to make that a little more equitable and a little less predatory. Let, let's flip the question around and let me ask this hypothetical and, and find out where you feel on it. What if, say, Google released an extension for Google Chrome called the, the Google Data Collector or whatever, and it put together a complete profile of you based on your, your browsing habits, everything that advertisers dream a cookie can provide, tracks you across every website, sees where your mouse movements go so it can tell what you're interested with, but you have absolute control over that data, and you could sell it to data providers who would monetize that for, let's say, 30 bucks a pop every month. Would you be comfortable with that choice? Well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't sell my data, but I also wouldn't trust that Google wasn't selling my data. Okay, let's let's abstract like, just that to be, away. Just to be honest, like I... If you're going to compile a dossier for me pro bono, no, I'm pretty sure you're using said dossier. Um, I mean, and they've already got a pretty fucking good dossier on me already. I've been a Google user for a long time. I, I don't have to wonder. I know they have a sizable dossier on me. I've been a Google it, user so long they send me physical shit from time to time. Right. Yeah, yeah. I get little hats in the mail. They sent me business cards for being one of the first oh, hundred thousand people awesome. to use Google Voice. Wow. They discontinued the Google Search appliance. They they shipped me off a uh, like an autographed picture of it as like their biggest hardware project to date. Uh, I got into a lot of the like closed betas for different Google programs and shit. Yeah, no, Google and I go back damn near twenty years. I mean, one day they're going to send you, like, underwear with your name stitched in them, and I wonder, would that even be weird? I, or would you just be like, all right, Google, that was a little more intimate than before, but sure. <laughs> I, uh, when I got my Gmail account, you needed a fucking invitation to get it. Uh, they, they gave everybody who got one through, like, Google's Friends and Family program got five invites. So yep, that's how I got mine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been on the, yeah. yeah, that's how I got mine on the invite, for sure. It's amazing how long Google has been with us. It still feels like, yeah, and they just control so much the in internet infrastructure, which I, I guess kind of brings us to Warren's proposal to break up the technology companies, which I, as before, have mixed feelings about. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm against anti-competitive practices in, in technology. I sounded the bullhorn about Microsoft back in the 90s. The antitrust case about uh, Internet Explorer was a seminal moment. Uh, also, the initial verdict in that case was to break up the company into three different parts. That was overturned on appeal. They stayed as one, but we put a bunch of restrictions on what they could do. Uh, and surprise, surprise, Internet Explorer does not exist anymore. Also, the browser that was supposed to replace Internet Explorer that Microsoft made Edge 
they've discontinued now. Microsoft has basically exited the browser business. Uh, the Windows 10 insists on reminding me that Microsoft Edge is a better browser than Google Chrome or Firefox. They, they have dropped I support it for it. it. <laughs> yeah. Which is actually sad because Edge was not that bad. Technically, Edge was honestly was it wasn't impressive. Yeah, yeah. but I, I a don't trust the Microsoft browser, and I haven't for two decades now. I, also, like the the most recent Firefox iteration really is a beautiful browser. So it's it's very nice, and so like. I mean, Edge is solid, and I was like, hey, all right, Microsoft, you finally got this one right. And then six months later, Firefox was like, do you want the browser of your dreams? Because we had a bunch of super nerds hate on us for 10 years, and we made something usable by them. And I was like, oh, okay. I, I feel very strongly about Firefox for really, really shitty reasons. Um, I will not That's do fair. it. And I, I know it's for a dumb reason. I was really into Firefox, and I went through a period for like three years where there was a persistent memory leak, uh, where Firefox yes. would, would just consume memory, uh, screw up releasing it back to the heap. So the RAM was never erased. It was just a black hole that eventually would suck up every amount of RAM you had in your system and you had to restart. Uh, and I swore off them. And I, I know it's basically a whole new browser. I know they got all the nice tricks from chrome they have a, a javascript oh, accelerator god dude at thing. this point chrome for me is the memory sink yeah. it's crazy like chrome has I'm like chrome has totally had that problem for like the past two three years yeah. and this most recent iteration of firefox has been i'd say is between like probably 60 and 70 percent less memory usage or sorry, 60 to 70 percent of memory usage compared to Chrome. So probably about yeah. 30 to 40 less. Chrome uses a sandboxing model where each tab is a whole browser process. So every tab you have has to have all the memory it needs for all the background shit for Chrome. There isn't like one central browser process that handles all that stuff and then each window is just a display window. It's a separate instance for each tab. That's that's why it eats up more memory per tab than other browsers. It, it is ridiculous. I also have 32 gigs of RAM in my system, so. Right, and I do as well, but yeah. <laughs> it was a problem one time. Uh, I So I, I have a little, net, uh, not a netbook, it was a Chromebook that I, I hacked to run a full version of Linux, and it's got like two gigs of RAM. It takes Chrome so long to do anything and if i have more than one tab open it brings the system to 20 minutes it's terrible yeah 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 my work computer is like that it sucks uh so i i kind of got off point there but the whole i guess point yeah of we've that completely is, lost yeah. in <laughs> the whole point of that is i don't think we need to break up these companies we need to discourage anti-competitive practices but maybe my high school libertarian is coming out. I, I do think that the best products tend to win out. And if every company is forced to play in a level playing field, like we eventually did to Microsoft after they abused their monopoly to get to 99% market share, uh, these things are, are capable of being sorted out. I just, I see the advancements that come out of technology and the way boundaries are really pushed and whatnot. And I, I just, I think a startup system, a vibrant industry, not a, a legacy industry with big players who are established and will never be pushed out, is, is more conducive to the, the 
you know, the Ray Kurzweil singularity, for, for <laughs> example, or whatnot. Uh, and, and maybe I'm naive and technology has already transitioned to being a legacy industry of, of blue chips that will not be supplanted and whatnot. Um, I'm, I'm open to being convinced on that, but I, my first blush with Warren's plan is I, I'm not all that in favor of it. I, I like her stuff about Amazon because uh, it, particularly to the Amazon issue, it targets their ability so that Amazon, um, the Amazon Basics brand uh, within the Amazon shop. The manner by which that functions is that Amazon's algorithm dictates things that do well in their store, and then they replicate the item themselves for cheaper and sell it for cheaper and give their Amazon logo sticker next to it. And so people are more likely to select it. And also it comes up at the top of every selection on your search. I do use Amazon basics cables all the time. Right. Like and HDMI so do I. cables and headphone cables and what what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And they're consistently like $2 cheaper, but what that does is that closes. I mean, that is, that should be a fucking antitrust thing. Like, they're totally cutting people out there. I mean, it's the Walmart of the Amazon store at that point in time. Like they have enough liquid cash that they can just dip into an entire industry to manufacture one tiny product and then just cut everybody else out so that they become the supplier. We accept house brands in like grocery stores. There's the, you know, the Safeway brand breakfast cereals and the Kroger brand, the Kirkland signature brand of everything at Costco and whatnot. Yeah, this I, is true. I, I I could definitely see the case that Amazon doing that is abusing its power. So I, I am I am open to that. I don't know how much of a monopoly Amazon really has. Like, how do their sales compare to say Walmart sales? Do do they dwarf Walmart? I don't. That I don't know. Yeah, and and it also I mean, their company is definitely worth more. Yeah. But, you know, that could be for a bajillion different reasons because it's a huge behemoth. I mean, it also gets to, I, I, I think, to my knowledge, Walmart doesn't have its own movie studio, <laughs> yeah, which also is, is kind of a testament to how phenomenally powerful Amazon is. And the Waltons are not going to space. Oh, well, <laughs> okay, so we bet that's two strong right. points. <laughs> The, um, the market also has to be defined. Like, is the market department stores or is the market online sales? You know, Amazon is absolutely a monopoly if you're looking at, at online sales. I'm less convinced that they're a monopoly when you're looking at, you know, the type of store Amazon would be if it were represented in the physical world and you include those and, and whatnot. Um, although as the world gets increasingly digital, Maybe the, the other segments of the market will disappear. And then Amazon picks them up just by virtue of already being huge, which would, in fact, be an abusive monopoly. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it is really difficult to compare the online and brick-and-mortar stores as well. Like, I feel like yeah, that's increasingly an apples-to-oranges discussion because they do operate differently, even though at the final end part it's very similar. But... Yeah, there's there's still a lot of fundamental differences. 
at least as of 2017, uh, Walmart dwarfed Amazon in revenue. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Amazon uh, had $500 billion in revenue in 2017, or in sales in 2017, uh, close to $100 billion. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I just, I, I think this is real complicated, and I'm, I'm open to these policy proposals, but I do have... I have very complicated feelings about them. I'm I mean, I'm also interested them. in seizing the means of production at Walmart. I mean, <laughs> it's not like just because they do more evil than Amazon that somehow they're better than everybody. Like, no, they're just, that's fucking evil still. That's still a bad corporation. They probably need to be scaled down somehow or made more friendly. Well, they actually did very similar things in terms of driving out local business in their yeah. original. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Amazon has taken their model and done it on the online form what Walmart has done with the brick and mortar store. All right. Um, I, I guess we'll roll on. We took a lot of time with that. Um, let, let's cover a few things. Manafort sentencing and HR1 I want to get in here. Uh, Manafort got less than four years in jail. Uh, and I believe his recommended sentence was measured in decades. So, yeah, like I'm a little bit curious. 20 years, yeah. He was facing up to 40 years in prison, I know, and I think his recommended sentence was something like 24. Uh, does this surprise you? Why is the sentence so short? You know, it did surprise me, and then I'm kind of wondering to myself, why did it surprise me? Because I know, like, I remember I was there when Judge Ellis kind of argued with, uh, Mueller on his premise before the trial, and then basically favored the um, defense all through the trial. I don't know why I would have had a different expectation in sentencing, but somehow I did. We just hope for the best anyway, <laughs> even though we know that we never ever can. We keep forgetting what timeline we're on. Right. Yeah. I mean, also like this country has a miserable track record of like doing anything right in white collar crime. So, like, just, it was a shocker that he actually got charged and found guilty of things. I mean, of course it was going to fall apart somewhere. He's been sentenced again this week coming up, so uh, yes. there'll be more yeah. time. And that's with a different judge, right? So we actually had the chance of a stick? Yeah. Right. One who's not a wingnut. Yeah. Instead of just judge, well, he looks sad and he's old, so let's, you know, he's always been a stand-up guy. <laughs> I'm like, not. wow, somebody should take your robes if you think that this dude has ever been a stand-up guy. Like, you are <laughs> not a good judge of character. The judge gave a little pre-sentencing speech where he uh, pointed out that none of the charges were about Russian collusion. <laughs> yeah. Also seemed a little bit strange behavior from a judge. That's kind of what he's done all along, though. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, the guy who... Chris pointed out exactly was the one who was always snapping at the special counsel's office. Uh, I think there was a lot of fear that he was going to end up causing a mistrial. So yeah, I, this is just kind of on the continuum of what's been happening all along in this particular courtroom. Uh, and then the other big piece of national news we had house resolution one passed. This was mm -hmm. a, 
a democracy-enhancing bill um, that was aiming to, well, do a whole lot of things. Uh, make it harder for states to impose voting restrictions on citizens. Uh, there was a bunch of anti-corruption uh, legislation that was in there. It's not even going to be brought up in the House. Fox News uh, trumpeted McConnell's firm no on that. Republicans have a whole litany of conspiracy theories about this bill, and they consider it a power grab. It's amazing how enhancing democracy can be called a power grab when you don't like the voters. It's amazing that that is considered a relevant opinion amongst elected officials. <laughs> it is a, a great statement of principles, though. We, we're doing a lot of things that include passing bills to run on in 2020, which I, I think is not, not really uh, forgotten. I guess is the point. It's very forward. Yeah, and with this president and that Senate, there's not a whole lot the House can do substantively. So, yeah, might as well be doing some of this. Well, and that's kind of the whole idea behind things like the Green New Deal and any other legislation that is being thrown out there. Now we're basically doing dry runs for a hoped for 2021 where if we have a democratic Senate and if we have a democratic president that can sign this legislation, we've worked out some of the details or at least the path to get it through our legislative process and have them sign it as soon as possible before the backlash starts kicking in as the thermostatic uh, forces within our political system kick in. And by 2022, the electorate is ready to throw Democrats out again for no reason at all. <laughs> Pretty much God, how we got the Affordable sucks. Care Act. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we only have about 15 minutes left, so I'm, I'm going to pass on the Civil War about Omar. We can talk about that next week. Uh, JJ, you want to talk to us for like 10 minutes here about uh, the Seattle City Council election? Yeah, sure. Um, so I can't do, you know, much of a deep dive on anybody because there's an enormous amount of them, apparently. Uh, and I was a little busy at work today. <laughs> there's anywhere from like seven to four candidates for every single seat. Wow. Right? Yeah. So uh, as I put in my TLDR version, a uh, full clown car, uh, Looking at the quick bios on that page, it kind of seems like a hot selection of all over the left uh, for pretty much every position. Um, so seven of the nine council seats are open, and four of those seven incumbent seats are not running, uh, including the council president. So it's you know, that's going to make for a really, really big turnover, a big change up for the city council, possibly even a, a, a large political shakeup just in terms of the organization and amongst the, the council members already. Uh, so the only two that are not running or that are not up for election are the two citywide seats. So all of the district seats are what um, are open right now. 
There's a big push to get Portland into a district model. Oh, you guys aren't districts? You guys are just uh, whole city-wide kind of thing? Yeah, and it, it really stifles a lot of voices. Uh, there's a big push to modernize the city. It was one of the things when I was looking at the city council election that you guys had going on. Very impressed by. I wish we had a district. Yeah, it's they just added the two non-district seats. And I actually really like that. I like that, you know, there's there's a bunch of district seats, and then we have these two kind of general seats. That seems like a nice balance to me. It's the uh, the one thing that I, I really noticed on all this is that the uh, there is no real right wing candidates for a lot of these offices. I mean, there are some that the the right wing media in Washington is cheerleading just because they may knock off some of the big boogeymen. Uh, Tashama Sawant has a challenge with really focusing on ethics. But none of them are, are you know, alt-right MAGA types. Yeah, I can't imagine that that would go very well. Yeah, just kind of scrolling through, I'm like, oh, somebody in District 1, former Seattle Police Department lieutenant, yeah, know, probably there, more conservative, but maybe not. Um, but yeah, it's, nobody's going to rock a MAGA hat and run for anything in Seattle. Thankfully, I mean, we have not the... crossed that. Thankfully, we're not Portland in that regard. Um, not to throw some unwanted <laughs> shade, but also well deserved, I suppose. Like, <laughs> we haven't we haven't dipped down that rabbit hole just yet. Oh yeah, Naval, Naval Reserve Intelligence Officer. He's, he's actually on MSNBC all the time. I really like him. Oh uh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not necessarily going to say he's the best candidate because I don't know anybody else in there, but I see him on TV all the time. And he's very intelligent. Yeah, so I guess 36 candidates in all I saw. Yeah, 36 candidates, including the three incumbents, though 39 in total for seven different seats. The... Uh... Council elections always get messy, but are you, you imagining any big upsets? Is there anybody who seems weak? I mean, it's hard to say since the majority of the seats open aren't even going to have an incumbent. So, so four, like four of those seats are going to be held by first-time council members. Um, I would say, I mean, so at that point, it would really be whether or not uh, the three people running for re-election end up getting kicked out. I mean, of course, like, it would be a huge upset if Sean Swant went out. But, I mean, at least looking, like, I think Pat Marcomi ran against her last time. I don't... I mean, not to say that she couldn't take a challenge from the left or the right. I mean, you know, it was it was a tenuous win, but um, you know, she's not always won a lot of friends in her years here. <coughs> I would say that that would be a pretty big upset if she got kicked out. But I think the other two are probably pretty secure. We will definitely... I mean, yeah, like her Shama Sawant winning was a, a bigger upset, which, I mean, admittedly, while I was early to the city, kind of struck me that the rule of incumbency also 
probably holds pretty well at Seattle City Council as well. I think it holds pretty well everywhere. Yeah. Right. It's obviously something we'll be checking back up on uh, to see how that goes. I do want to spend just a couple minutes at the tail end here talking about something that gets into uh, some popular culture tropes, I want to say, and also a background interest of mine in preventing gun violence. We had a uh, we had a bit of an incident here in, in Portland back in February, and we knew it was big. We knew there were shots fired, shots exchanged. It actually started over in Vancouver. Uh, the police went to uh, arrest somebody in a car. The guy ended up shooting at them and then taking off. They pursued him across the Columbia into Portland, uh, where they had a running gun battle with him on the freeway. Uh, the report that's come out over the last couple days is that they actually shot out their own windshield in order to shoot at the other vehicle while it was going on the freeway. Uh, they did this over 40 times from an AR-15 rifle that they had. I cannot imagine what the sort of, like, bystander casualty rate could be if, you know, that all went bad on the fucking freeway. Excuse yeah. me? Um, but the other thing, and really why I wanted to talk about that, is I'm actually not sure how jurisdiction across state lines works. I know it doesn't work, like, in the movies, where if you go to a different county... Uh, you're, you're scot free or whatnot. Damn those two boys! Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was picturing when you posted that yeah. story. <laughs> you, usually, there's at least you know for a county or two over some reciprocity that's agreed to. Some states, such as California, have statewide licensing of police. A cop in California is a cop in California. It does not matter where they are. It does not matter where their their bureau is. What any of that. Going across state lines seems a little bit more uh, strange to me, and I don't actually know how the rules work on that. Yeah, so, uh, I, I'm, gonna throw I'm it out pretty there sure he's guys. not in the right. <laughs> I mean, or rather, I'm pretty sure he's going to be censured probably in like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if the crime is continuing across state lines, he's probably going to get busted when he goes over, but... Yeah, I think with a high-profile case like that, they could find it pretty quick. An extradition process is going to go pretty smoothly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, something about the fact that Vancouver cops were shooting up the freeway here in Portland, Oregon, is just it bothers me a little bit. Yeah, we're giving you measles and bullets. <laughs> it's not a good look. It's not a good look. Uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. Um, the the suspect from that incident is in jail or in the hospital awaiting jail. Um, I don't know what more is going to come out of it, but Vancouver's a scary place, man. That is the wrong side of the Columbia. I am sorry to say that. That is the armpit of your state. I have heard that. I ha- I have yet to be there, but I have heard that uh, from many people. I'm going to make some, some bumper stickers that are just like Vancouver, the Bakersfield of the North, and slap oh. on some cars over there. But Van Tucky is the nickname already, so yeah. So the Proud oh, Boys organized, where Patriot, excuse me, Patriot Prayer organizes. This is just right. not a place you want to be, I don't okay. think. All right. I think that's going to do it for us. We're almost at the time limit. I apologize for spending 10 minutes making you guys yak earlier. My bad. 
but thanks for joining me. We will discuss Omar next week so that we can all hate each other. I'm very excited to look forward to that. Fight, fight, fight. Fight, fight. Bring it down. <laughs> uh, have a good one, guys. Take it easy. Later. Bye.